want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Christ-Centered and Clear is about seeing and sharing Jesus from all the Scriptures. And this week on the podcast, uh, we will hear from my dad, Danny Aiken. Over the next few weeks, we're going to hear uh, from a conference that Christ Center and Clear recently had in Dallas, Texas, as we thought through preaching Christ, uh, sharing Christ, and seeing Christ from the wisdom literature. And so we will hear uh, this week from my dad, Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, um, who talks to us about Christ in the in Song of Solomon. Uh, my dad has been actually preaching through Song of Solomon his entire uh, adult ministry and uh, has recently, in the last few years, maybe the last decade, come to, to have a different kind of approach, particularly seeing Christ in the Song of Solomon. So he talks through some of that, and then obviously gives us uh, helpful ways to preach Christ uh, from that book, uh, from one that sometimes can be seen. It certainly, uh, we've said this with all the wisdom literature, can be seen very practically, but oftentimes hard to see how does it uh, point uh, to Christ. And so he, he walks us through, uh, through that in several ways. And so we hope that you'll enjoy that. We'll also, from the next few weeks, hear uh, more of the sessions from that uh, from that conference, and so hope that it'll be beneficial as you think about preaching Christ, uh, sharing Christ, and seeing Christ in uh, the wisdom literature. Thanks for listening. Good morning, and it is an honor to be here with uh, you all, and uh, I want to honor the time, and so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, I was trained uh, to be an expository preacher, and I believe it is the best way. In fact, I would not hesitate to say the only way that one ought to preach uh, Walt Kaiser used to say you could preach a topical message once every five or six years, repent before the Lord, and then don't do it again for five or six years. Uh, I basically agree with that uh, sentiment. But I would also point out that when I was trained to do uh, biblical exposition, though I was trained in the historical, grammatical, to use Kaiser's categories in his Towards an Exegetical Theology, syntactical uh, study of the text, uh, that type of hermeneutic, I was not taught to move on to the theological and the Christological, and it really wasn't until I had come back to Southeastern as president 2004 that uh, my son Jonathan kind of playfully challenged me and picked at me, uh, saying, Dad, when you preach from the Old Testament, how come you don't mention Jesus? And I was like, whoa, 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 now, that, that's, that's a little bit uh, strong. Uh, I always give a gospel invitation at the end of every message that I do. And he said, yes, but Jesus said that uh, beginning with the law and the prophets, it all points to him. And he said in John 5, 39, the scriptures, they testify about me. And of course, when he made both of those statements, he was speaking specifically of the Old Testament. And uh, he then said, why is it that we don't honor the hermeneutic both of Jesus and the apostles. And uh, I'd actually been told uh, by some colleagues over the years that, uh, yes, they did it, uh, but we shouldn't. Uh, they did it, sometimes probably stretch texts where they should not be stretched, and we should just stay away from that. In fact, I have a dear friend who said, we are not to preach like Jesus. Well, I understand that on one hand, but on another, I think that that is defective, and it leads us to have probably the best way to say it is an incomplete hermeneutic. So since I have the first session, 
what I'm going to do is kind of lay a foundation for doing uh, biblical, uh, theological, Christological preaching that honors the historical grammatical hermeneutic, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, it has a more fullness to it. And so we're going to look at the very quickly, I'll move fast, uh, the issue of biblical theology and how I think that's essential to doing good hermeneutics. Uh, and then I'll just lay out very quickly kind of an overarching framework for doing faithful, historical, grammatical, theological, Christological preaching. And then I will specifically apply it to the Song of Songs. I will make sure that I stop on time. So let me just say this. Uh, if you want, uh, you can go to my website, daniellakin.com. Everything that is there is free, does not cost you a dime. And you can go there and you can look at uh, all of the messages I preached through the Song of Songs at my most recent church, uh, Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. And you can see how in each of those messages, I sought to explain the text in its historical grammatical context, but also raise and ask the question, how does this text point to and anticipate Christ? And you can decide whether or not you think I do that successfully or not. So you look on page one of your notes, preaching Christ in the Song of Songs, faithfully and fully preaching any text of Scripture, I believe requires a knowledge of biblical theology. And no one has helped me more in developing that conviction than Don Carson. So I take advantage of a really fine article he wrote that is published uh, at the Gospel Coalition website, and I give that information at the end. But Carson notes that biblical theology answers the question, how has God revealed his word, both historically, we all believe in this room, in what we call progressive revelation, but also organically, that is internally as well. And then he points out that biblical theology studies the theology of individual biblical books like Isaiah, the Gospel of John, in my case this morning, the Song of Songs, uh, of a select collection within the Bible. So you look at the theology of, say, the Pentateuch, or you look at the theology of the wisdom literature, or you look at the theology of the synoptics, you look at the theology of Paul's letters, and so on. And then what it does, and this is the key, traces out themes as they develop across time within the canon. And in Carson's article, he notes that the theme of the temple is one that is uh, developed, and it grows, and it matures, and it fills out throughout the totality of Scripture, so that at the very end of the Bible, what do you have in Revelation with a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem is a new temple. Uh, and now the temple reaches sort of its climax and its full realization, or as Paul Harvey would say, it provides the rest of the story, but a story that has been unfolding since Genesis chapter 1, all right? And then for me in particular, I think the theme of the shepherd is very, very prevalent and relevant when it comes to preaching and teaching through the Song of Solomon. And what happens then is it fills out a whole Bible theology of whatever subject you may be looking at, the temple, uh, a shepherd, uh, the servant theme, uh, and on and on and on, all right? So four things are essential then to doing biblical theology well in the context of being a faithful expositor. Number one, read the Bible progressively as a historically developing collection of documents. God did not provide his people with all of the Bible at once. Number two, we presuppose that the Bible is coherent because we believe 
in its divine inspiration. Yes, it has many human authors, but one divine author, an author who will never contradict himself. Number three, work inductively from the text, that is, from individual books and from themes that then run through the whole of the Bible. Students of biblical theology recognize that their subject matter is exclusively the Bible. Now, again, I taught systematic theology for almost 15 years. I love systematic theology, but I again teach my students that you lay a foundation for doing theology with historical, grammatical, theological interpretation. Then you build on that doing biblical theology. You then add to that, in my mind, historical theology. And then after those steps have been laid, you then can do well systematic theology. And I'll tell you, uh, I don't care who you are in this room, you will gravitate either, it's just the way you're wired, either towards doing biblical theology or towards doing systematic theology. You just will. And if you are one of those individuals that gravitates towards systematic theology, and I've got many friends who do, then you're going to have a really nice, tight system. But you're going to make some scriptures squeal. You're just going to make them holler because they don't quite fit as nicely and neatly into your system. On the other hand, if you're more prone to doing biblical theology, uh, you'll have a more flexible system. I mean, it won't be endlessly flexible, but it'll be more flexible. You'll be willing to live with more tension, but you won't make the Bible squeal very much. I have a mentor in the ministry who is not a classic Calvinist, and uh, he said, but if you hear me preaching on Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14, I'll sound very much like a Calvinist. Well, yeah, I would think so. And uh, he just simply points out that he tries to let the text set the agenda. And if that's how you're wired, and I think that's the best way, by the way, to be wired, uh, you again will live with more tension in your system, more mystery in your system, but you won't make scriptures holler saying, I don't really fit very well into the little box that you're trying to put me inside of, all right? And then number four, make theological connections within the entire Bible that the Bible itself authorizes. And Carson says, one way to do this is to trace the trajectory of themes straight through the Bible. So when it comes to interpreting and preaching the Song of Solomon, for example, there are three themes, I think, that in particular stand out when we work our way through those eight chapters. Number one, Song of Songs takes us back to what marriage was like before the fall in Genesis 3 when there was no battle of the sexes. And you note very well the reoccurring theme of the garden in the Song of Songs. Now, the garden theme doesn't always mean the same thing. Uh, sometimes it refers like to a literal garden. Sometimes uh, the, the bride, Shulamite, refers to her body as a garden. And then sometimes she even refers to the innermost uh, sexual parts of her body as a garden. And so it's there. And of course, when they read, a, a Hebrew would have read the word garden, garden, garden. Where would their mind have gone? But back to the garden when there was no sin, when Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with one another, which of course is the goal of the Song of Songs, not only for uh, us in our marriages, but ultimately what ends in a garden city in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. All right, number two, 
Song of Songs then also looks forward to what a redeemed marriage in Christ looks like. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 should be near at hand as you're working through the Song of Songs. And then number three, Song of Songs typifies the pursuit of a shepherd king. I could add the word, and I do later, bridegroom. A shepherd bridegroom king for his bride and one that finds climactic and eschatological fulfillment in nothing less than the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And again, you will discover that the theme of the shepherd, which begins back in the book of Genesis, runs all the way through to Revelation chapter 7, where our shepherd brings us under his care, and we never thirst, we never suffer pain, there's no more death, and the Song of Songs, in one sense, has reached its climax in the apocalypse. So, what do I think about the Song of Songs? I think it is this. It is a theological and lyrical masterpiece that shows us what marriage between a man and a woman ought to be. Absolutely, we honor the historical, uh, uh, grammatical, syntactical hermeneutic. And by way of analogy, and I am not a fan of allegory. I've, again, got some really good friends that have written some really creative commentaries on the Song of Songs. Uh, the problem with the allegorical approach is that no two commentaries agree. They don't even come close to agreeing. And they can just kind of go off, and you're like, you know, I could have read that text a million times, and I would not have come up with what that guy came up with. Well, that guy may be right, uh, but the odds are what he found is more a reflection of his imagination than what the divine author intended to be in the text. I'm a big fan of typology. I'm a, because the Bible uses typology all the time. I'm a big fan of analogy because the Bible does that all the time. But the only time in the Bible where an allegory is expressly stated is in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. The word actually appears there, and it's almost like Paul is saying, look, I know what I'm about to do. We don't do. But in this one instance, I'm going to make an exception. But let me be crystal clear. What I am about to do is an allegory. And he makes it very clear that's what he is doing in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. So by way of analogy, it is easy to see how the bride and bridegroom in this song portray to us God and Israel, Christ and his church, and ultimately the Savior and his people. Thus, the song anticipates and points us to a shepherd, bridegroom, king, whose name is Jesus, a bridegroom who loved his church, his bride, and gave himself for her. Thus, it should not surprise us that the Song of Songs is also messianic and Christological, as Jesus told us it should be in John chapter 5 and verse 39. So, Here's a brief overview of what you should learn in uh, her, uh, homiletics and Bible exposition. What are 12 components of expository preaching that also include the Christ-centered component, number one? Christ-centered preaching does follow a holistic hermeneutic. It honors in this order the historical, the grammatical, the theological, and the Christological. Scripture both drives and determines, shapes and forms the sermon as it was given by God through the human author or authors. And again, I agree with Fee and Stewart. A text cannot mean today 
what it did not mean then, but it may mean more than the human author understood. And I am an advocate of what is known as census plenary. The, this is the only time I'll use the screen. I teach my students when I teach preaching that they should think of the meaning of a text like an iceberg. The Old Testament believers saw this, but we as New Testament believers sit in the catbird seat and we see the whole thing. And so it's not a different iceberg. It's the same iceberg. It's just now in light of the Christ event and the coming of Messiah, the scriptures take on a more full understanding. So one easy example, the suffering servant song of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Do you think Isaiah understood everything about what he was prophesying when under the Holy Spirit he penned those words? I'm certain that he did not. But you and I now on this side of the cross and with the full revelation of God have a much more full and complete understanding of the servant motif and the suffering servant of that particular passage. Not a different servant. It is the same servant, but we just have a better, more better is not the right word, a more full understanding. Number two, Christ-centered preaching honors the grand redemptive storyline of the Bible of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It recognizes that the Bible is his story, and we then seek to find our place in his story. Number three, Christ-centered preaching follows the pattern of Jesus and the apostles revealed in the Bible. All of the Bible is about Christ. Uh, we do not treat the Old Testament like Jewish rabbis. It is Christian scripture. In fact, it was the only Christian scripture that the early church had until the beginning of the writing of the Paul, letters of Paul and then later the bringing together of the Gospels. And I think this is a very crucial statement. The incarnation of the Son of God is the key that unlocks the meaning of the whole Bible. And where do we get that idea? Of course, we get it from Jesus. Number four, Christ-centered preaching sees Jesus as the hero and the focus of the whole Bible. It is always asking the question, how does this text relate to, anticipate, typify, or point to in some way the person and work of Christ. So let's take the book I'm responsible for. What do you find in Solomon, uh, the Song of Songs? Solomon is a shepherd king. He is in pursuit of a bride that eventually he marries in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And then you have a description of their wedding night in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1. And because of the way that Solomon loves this woman. Now, I have to deal with this. I haven't brought this up. I used to take Song of Solomon to be speaking literally of Solomon and a literal woman that was, is referred to in the book as Shulamite or Shulamith. But yes, I'm bothered by the same fact that you are, that the dude had 650 wives and 350 concubines. Or so that's close to it. He had a bunch of women in his life, way too many, all right? And so I'm like, well, how does this work? Well, some of the older scholars would argue, well, he wrote Song of Solomon uh, at the beginning of his life. He wrote Proverbs in the middle of his life, and he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And, and I could see that, that there's no evidence for that, but that's how they would then reconcile that this could be 
a, a literal rendering of a literal relationship. I now have moved to where I think Song of Songs, I do think it was written by Solomon, which a lot of modern scholars don't. Even evangelicals will say that it's not uh, by Solomon, it's about Solomon, and actually it's a foil to criticize this king who was very immoral in terms of all the relationships he had with women. And how many of you ever heard of the three major character approach to the Song of Solomon? It was never, ever offered until the modern era. And what you have are some who believe that actually in the song, there are three main characters. There is Shulamite. There is the king who is trying to seduce Shulamite away from her true lover, who is a shepherd. And so there's the shepherd. There is Solomon, the king who wants to add another chick to his harem. And there is the Shulamite woman. Because I have some really good friends that hold that view, I have tried my best to go back through, starting from scratch, and read the book and try to find how they do that. And brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. I cannot find three main characters in the book. It seems to me that Solomon is the shepherd, is the king, is the bridegroom, pursuing this woman that he marries and takes to himself. Furthermore, there's nothing really ever negatively said about the man in this book, which is interesting. Nothing. And so he is, I think, a single person, but what you actually have is an idealization. It's an ideal. This is what marriage ought to be like. This is what marriage looked like before the fall. We also see evidences of how the fall messes it up, but also we anticipate the future when the fall will be undone and marriage will be perfectly restored. And yes, it will be perfectly restored in a, a shepherd king bridegroom whose name is Jesus, who takes to himself a bride, which is his church. So I think that is the better way to understand what is going on. So again, you have a shepherd king pursuing a bride that he makes his own. And because of his great love for her, there are many things that can be said, but one, he puts her heart at rest, chapter one, and he intimately cares for her and can speak of her by the end of the book as perfect, and flawless. Question, who among you have ever met a bride that was perfect and had no flaw? Now, almost all of us in this room are married. I think most all of us in this room would say, I got a woman that like really approaches that, but I mean, come on, Danny, she's a sinner like I'm a sinner. I know that. But there is someday going to be a bride dressed in white, who will be perfect and flawless, and it is the what? Bride of Christ. And yes, this bride in this book is pointing us ultimately to that glorious and beautiful picture. I have to be honest with you, Christ and the church is all over Song of Songs, and you don't have to allegorize to do it. It's just there, all right? So number five, Christ-centered preaching then will be rigorously theocentric and Christocentric, not anthropocentric. We're looking for God in Christ. We're asking the text first, what does it show me about God? How does it point to Christ? Yes, I will ask later, what does this text say about fallen humanity? But that's not the first question that I asked. Six, Christ-centered preaching always begins with and honors the historical grammatical hermeneutic, but it doesn't stop there. It also includes the theological and the Christological. Seven, 
when interpreting the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Now, here's the key. By using typology and analogy, we look for sweeping themes, not little one-to-one correspondences with details. We look for sweeping themes such as redemptive promises, prophecies, types, examples, patterns, and persons that will again point to and anticipate Christ. And this is not uh, allegory. It is analogy and typology. Eight, Christ-centered preaching avoids the snares of moralism and legalism that promote pride, self-righteousness on one hand, and despair, self-condemnation on the other, which is always the danger when you focus more on the human persons in a text, especially in the Old Testament, like think about dare to be a Daniel, uh, have the courage of David, uh, go right down the line with, and I I used to, by the way, I'm I'm not a fan really of biographical preaching. You say, why? Because I think it runs the risk of of doing moralism, and we raise up uh, Old Testament, and there are Old Testament heroes, but we raise them up as almost if, if they are flawless, and I don't care which one you want to pick out, uh, they ain't none of them that are flawless. The only one that comes the closest in the Old Testament without anything negative whatsoever said about him is Joseph. And even he probably possessed uh, some arrogancy and some pride because of the way his father doted on him. And so I just think it's very uh, dangerous to do that. That's why we want to stay, stay focused on Christ. Number nine, Christ-centered preaching reminds us that we don't need to be good to be saved. We need a Savior, a rescuer to be saved. Number 10, Christ-centered preaching sees Genesis 3.15 as a crucial interpretive key that unlocks the unfolding drama of redemption. Some of of the men that I've read, uh, Gradanus, Goldsworthy, Ferguson, uh, uh, these people believe that perhaps the Old Testament key uh, to interpreting interpreting the Bible is Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel promise in the Scriptures. I do think you ought to allow it to be a hermeneutical key. 11, Christ-centered preaching will utilize what Brian Chappell calls the fallen condition focus, and it asks the question, what is there in this text that shows man's need that requires the grace of God, a Savior, for resolution? And the number 12 is a bonus point because I wanted to have 12, not 11. has nothing to do necessarily with Christ-centered preaching, but it's the only original thought Danny Aiken has ever had on preaching to this day. I've not seen it in any book prior to me saying it, so I'm claiming it is mine until it shows up somewhere else, and I will still say, well, I didn't get it from them because I didn't find it until it came to me, but I do think it's helpful. Christ-centered preaching recognizes that what we say is more important than how we say it. But how we say it has never been more important. And what I mean by that, brothers and sisters, is simply this. Your people in this day and time do not have to listen to bad preaching. They do not have to listen to bad preaching. They can go online, and there is a boatload, a plethora of men and women, but men that are unbelievably gifted as expositors of the Bible, and they can listen to them till their little hearts run out, uh, and they're there. And so uh, I don't want you to mimic people, or, but I do think we're wise to ask the question, 
Why would I be willing to listen to this guy week in and week out? Why would I be willing to do that? What is it that he does in terms of how he delivers God's word that I find attractive and captivating? And then take who you are, the gifts and abilities that God's given you, and hone your preaching skills to the highest possible level that you can. Mark Gever says I'm being extreme, maybe, but I still think it's probably true. I think it's a sin to preach the Bible in a boring fashion because it's the most wonderful book in the world. And so you just take who you are, work hard to develop your skills and abilities, and then preach God's word, preach Christ, but preach him well, all right? So let me take about five minutes, and I'll bring my time to a close because I want to honor where we are. But what are some specific Christological themes that you would glean if you worked your way through? And I would challenge all of you to do so, uh, the, the eight chapters of Song of Songs. Now, I was talking to my uh, hermeneutics class, my Bible exposition class last week, and one of the young men in class said, so I'm just curious, how many times have you preached through Song of Songs in your life? And I have preached through it one, two, three, four times. I've written three books on it. How many times have you preached through it on Sunday morning? None. None. Now, would I preach through it on Sunday morning? Yes, I would. Would I then have to make a decision? How precise and specific am I going to get in this book if there are children in the congregation? And I could see doing one of two things. One, uh, even if we don't have uh, a children's church, which I'm not a huge fan of that. That's a whole other issue for another day. But uh, if we're going to have children normally present and they're going to stay there, then I'm going to have to make some judicious decisions about how I handle some particular passages, especially the three times that Solomon describes his bride from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet and includes a lot of, shall we say, very picturesque details about what he was looking at, okay? I'm just going to have to, you know, I mean, when you're talking about climbing, climbing, you know, uh, palm trees and grabbing the breast of her fruit, the fruit of her breast, and, oh, you know, okay, I, I can just see you having to go home after church, and your little one's saying, Daddy, why, why did Brother Danny or Dr. Aiken talk, and you're going to have to, like, I sure wish you'd kept your mouth shut about that. Well, I, I might not keep my mouth shut, but I may just kind of like jump over and just not go into the details. On the other hand, if we make the decision, well, you know what, for this particular series, uh, those 10 and under, we're going to provide some alternative for those weeks that we're, I, I could see doing that. And if that's the case, then you're going to get the full metal jacket. I'm just going to go into everything that's there and uh, just, you know, uh, let you uh, see what uh, the Holy Spirit inspired. And let me say this, there was a professor at Southern Seminary many decades ago who said, well, you know, I can't believe that Song of Songs made the cut to get into the canon. It really reads like pornography and Playboy magazine. Well, that said a lot more about that professor than it does the content of the Song of Songs. Because even though it does get very intimate in its details, it does so in a beautiful, tasteful, poetic kind of way. I, I defy you to find me a passage in there that you can't preach before your people and not become salacious and sensual. At the same time, you can recognize God gave human bodies to be enjoyed. 
both in terms of how we uh, touch them, but also how we look at them, how we smell them, and so on. So real fast, I'll just hit a couple of the highlights and bring my time to a close. One of the things you learn at the very beginning of the book, there is a wonderful king whose name is a, 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 a wonderful smelling ointment that causes all to find him attractive and lovely and want to be near him. Well, there is one who has a name like that, and his name is Jesus. Number two, this king is also a shepherd. In fact, he is a shepherd king bridegroom who cares for his sheep as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, 1 Peter 2, 25. Three, our shepherd king gives us rest under his shadow, and he nourishes and sustains us with the fruit of his care. And by the way, we, not he, are the lily of the valley. Now, I love that old song, he's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. Well, he's not. The church is, the bride is, but if you want to sing it, that's fine. Just let them know later that you violated the Bible. But anyway, and what does he do? Well, he rescues her from the thorns. Where do we find thorns first mentioned in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Number six, like Mary Magdalene in the garden, we should seek our king even in times of darkness and hold him tightly and when we find him. And by the way, O'Donnell in his very, very fine commentary points out that this is a particular theme that has been present all throughout uh, church history, beginning with the uh, apostolic fathers and running even into the expositors of the time of the Reformation. Number seven, I love this one, and I'm going to stop with it. We should long for the coming of our shepherd king with his armies crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what you have in chapter 3, verses 6 to 11, is the bridegroom coming in this great uh, 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 display of of wealth and power, uh, a a huge parade to come and get his bride, which, of course, we know is going to happen ultimately when our bridegroom comes again. Jonathan Edwards said this, The church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, yea, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his loves, and she shall drink her fill, yea, she shall swim in the ocean of his love. And I lied, I need to note note number eight. The love of the shepherd king has transformed a timid, shy, insecure woman, and that's how she is in the early chapters, into what is now a beautiful, that word occurs over 12 times in the book, a beautiful, radiant bride because she is the object of his love. And because he has transformed her, He can now say in chapter 4 and verse 7, she has no flaw. And she can be described this way because the way he has loved her has made her so. And then I just add, well, this is how our bridegroom sees us, through his imputed righteousness. Thus, the intimacy we will enjoy with this bridegroom is without parallel 
in this world. And so, yes, I still believe that Song of Songs is about how a man and a woman rightly love one another within the wonderful gift of marriage, but it is more than that. And this is a book that anticipates that glorious day in Revelation 19 when there is a bridegroom who presents his bride perfectly adorned in white because he has made her so. So preach it, have fun with it. I do promise you this, your attendance will increase. Now that's not the motivation for doing it, but I promise you your attendance will increase. In fact, we used to make the joke, you won't increase your attendance, either preach on sex or preach on the end times. And if you really want to increase, increase your attendance, preach on sex in the end times, and you'll have a packed house. Now, I don't know about that, but it sounds funny. So let me pray, and we'll take a break. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of learning more and more about it. Thank you that you've promised us and showed us that all of your word points to Christ. And so, Lord, help us to be good, faithful interpreters of your word. Yes, Lord, starting with uh, the history and the grammar and the syntax of it. But Lord, let us not uh, cut the uh, hermeneutical process short. Help us, Lord, to also ask good theological questions. And Lord, let us ask, well, where is it that I see my Savior lurking, perhaps in the shadows, but sometimes front and center in this particular passage? And then, Lord, let us just unfold the beauty of what your word has shown us. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We appreciate you listening to the Christ Center and Clear podcast and uh, thankful for my dad, Danny Aiken, who just helped us think through preaching Christ, seeing Christ, and sharing Christ from the Song of Solomon. Next week, we will hear from my brother John, my, my co-host on the podcast, as he will talk to us about Christ in Proverbs. Again, I said this even at the beginning of this podcast, but Proverbs is oftentimes one where with both reading, teaching, preaching, uh, it's very easy to make the practical applications of Proverbs, but to, to think through how to do it in a way that's not moralistic, a way that points to Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all the scriptures. John will walk us through that next week. So stay tuned in. Always please share uh, the podcast, rate, review. We're th- so thankful that you would give time to listen. We very much appreciate you being connected to Christ Centered and Clear. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.